0: Good morning, church family. I've been given the topic of peace during our four weeks of Advent, and I'm really excited about it because peace is so interwoven in the gospel. It's very, the idea of peace is very gospel-centric. In fact, that's exactly where we find our peace, right in the heart of the gospel. So the title of my message is Peace That Outlasts the Christmas Season. But before we begin, I'd like to seek the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would be among us today, that you would strengthen our hearts, prepare our hearts for this message to remind us both of the goodness that you've given to us by saving us, but also of the need of salvation in order to have true peace. I pray you would help me to proclaim this message you have given me with boldness, fearlessness, and strength, and I pray that I would preach it clearly and concisely, Father be among us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think oftentimes when the Christmas season comes around, our minds are naturally inclined to shift into a different gear. We go from the mundane flow of life to this sense of peace that fills the atmosphere. We have the snow on the ground. We have the lights. We have the shopping that we're doing as we prepare to give and receive the family, the meals. But as Brian said in his prayer, unfortunately, when the season comes to a close, we're usually left materialized and void of any true sense of peace. So I want to be sure that we have real cause for lasting peace this year. And I think the best way to do that is by reminding ourselves of the real reason we celebrate Christmas. Many would assume that it's all about the birth of Christ, but I believe that that's only the surface of what Christmas is really about, and today we're going to examine a text that will broaden our understanding and allow us to see that the purpose of his birth was ultimately his death. It's interesting that the gifts given to the boy Jesus when the wise men finally made it to him were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Frankincense and myrrh traditionally are what's used to prepare a body for burial. I think that's seemingly prophetic. Whether that has any significance at all, I don't know. It's interesting, though. I invite you to turn with me to our main text, Isaiah 53, verse 1 through 6. I don't know what that's in in the Pew Bible, what page that is, so I'll give you a minute to get there. If you didn't bring your Bible with you this morning. It reads, who has believed what he has heard from us? all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As you can tell from the text, it's essentially a preview of the gospel. And the book of Isaiah is very gospel rich. In fact, some people go as far as to call Isaiah the gospel prophet. It's really interesting, too, that the name Isaiah literally means salvation of the Lord. Let's examine our text more closely. Isaiah starts off in the 53rd chapter by saying, who is believed? Who is believed? This question is not in regards to Isaiah's generation, but a future generation. A generation that would see the incarnate Christ. And the belief here is in reference to belief in Messiah Jesus. And really it's a rhetorical question because as we see from the text... He was not believed on, at least not by the majority of his own people, the Jews. In Romans 10 16, Paul reiterates this fact by quoting Isaiah and adding that not all have obeyed the gospel. What is it to obey the gospel? To obey the gospel is to believe the gospel, right? To believe the gospel, to exercise faith in Christ. Then the question is asked and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord here is in reference to the strength of the Lord. That is the saving strength of the Lord. In other words, the question is, who has this been revealed to? Who has the revelation gone out to? Who has received this message of salvation? Who has believed on it? Moving forward, he says that he grew up before him like a young plant. That is that Jesus grew up before God. As a young child, he was born, he grew up into a man before the Lord during his incarnation. And Isaiah says that he grows up as a root out of dry ground. This root ties into Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In Revelation 22.16, Jesus calls himself the root and descendant of David. And this has to do with the fulfillment of a promise mentioned in 1 Kings 9:5, that David's throne will be established forever over Israel. The dry ground refers to both the place and time of Jesus' birth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, the city of David. And at the time of his arrival, it was a place under the control of Roman oppressors. The Jews had gone through a 400-year spiritual drought. The religious leaders were all but righteous, adding to the law, traditions, and commandments, heaping up things on people that they were not able to carry, burdens that were far too heavy. As we see through the Gospels, the temple was used as a marketplace, right? Sin, along with lawlessness, was running rampant. I think it suffices to say that the ground was very dry, and the Jews were looking for some relief. Unfortunately, as was forementioned in verse 1, when the relief came, they failed to recognize it. They didn't see it. They were blind. It went right over their head. Part of that could be because of what Isaiah goes on to say. He had no majesty or beauty that we should desire him. He was like any other guy to them. They were looking for a ruler, a man of conquest, a powerful man, a mighty man, a man of comeliness. Somebody who was going to come to the earth and set up his rule, his reign, lay down some authority, take over what the Romans were doing in their oppression. They were looking for a strong man, a strong leader. But instead, they viewed Jesus as nothing more than some obscure carpenter, perhaps a prophet at best. Because they didn't get their version of the Messiah. Isaiah 53.3 says he was despised. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Just think of that for a minute. Verse 3 He was despised. He was despised. Jesus Christ was despised. And the word despised here can be used interchangeably with despicable or vile or worthless. He was literally hated. This is hard to understand, especially since the scripture says that he was hated without a cause. In my mind, I'm trying to understand the logic here. Here he comes and he's healing people. He's loving people. right? He's the epitome of everything that is good and holy and just and true. Pouring out compassion, preaching a message of hope. The only thing I can liken it to is like a newborn baby, right? There's this beautiful baby. And, And yet innocent and beautiful that there's this hatred for it now even a baby isn't as pure as jesus christ but it's the only thing i can liken it to in my mind to, to, to make sense of it how how could somebody hate something like that and to hate it without a cause he was hated and rejected rejected as their messiah and rejected as their king and you know what this didn't stop at his death when they thought they had accomplished it all and took them off the face of the earth. It didn't end there. To this day, every August in the synagogues, when they read from the book of Isaiah, the Jews omit the 53rd chapter. They omit it completely. They'll read the 52nd chapter, they'll omit a couple of verses from that, and then they'll scoot right on over the 54th chapter. And a lot of that has to do with a fear. right? A fear that perhaps some of the Jews might see. Maybe some of it has to do with shame. Because undoubtedly many Jews are familiar with the New Testament. And they would see, hey, it seems like Isaiah 53 is really talking about what happened to Messiah. What happened to Jesus in the New Testament. So there's this sense of control, a sense of fear. But it also isn't just limited to the Jews. Many Gentiles hate the idea of Jesus Christ. And I had the privilege of talking to a dear sister from our church this past week who was at the YMCA, and uh, she was there, and there were these, uh, from, if I understood the story correctly, there were different window panes, and on these different window panes was art of different religions, but it was missing Christianity, so she drew a picture of the nativity scene, and I believe she went home, went back, maybe the next day, and all those pictures are there except for which one? The nativity scene. It's funny how there's always this zeroed in focused attack on Christ. A zeroed in attack on Christianity. Every other religion's left alone, right? It's okay. Let's not bother the Muslims or the Jews. But let's let's get rid of Christ. Even in evangelism, from my experience, I've I've shared the gospel with people only to get a blank stare. This blank black stare as if they're staring into my soul. Looking demonized. I mean this, this is the reality of it. I've had people swear at me. Try to push me away. All for the name of Jesus Christ. All for the name of Jesus Christ. We see the idea of. Different monuments being taken down. Outside of state buildings. You have the ten commandments being taken down. Certain Christian. Statues that are honoring soldiers. They want it all taken down. They don't want anything to do with Christ. Because they say hey. This Christ guy. We don't we don't need any of that. We don't need to be told we need to be holy or righteous, totally missing the point. But instead, you think about even Michigan, they're comfortable with putting up satanic statues. And it wrenched my heart this past week to look into my newsfeed and see that in our own state, in the Capitol building, there's a, state, a satanic statue. A satanic statue with an arm holding up an apple. I don't remember exactly what it says. I think it says knowledge knowledge is the greatest gift. Something along those lines. I couldn't believe my eyes. How disgusting is that? But yet that's the attack on Christ. Let's take Christ out and to go as far as to exalt Satan. But all that just to show it it didn't stop. It hasn't stopped and it won't stop. It won't stop. But despite all this, Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. (laughs) It, It gives me this picture of when the scripture says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? We were hostile against God. He knew it, he knew everything that would ever happen, and yet he goes to the cross. And this verse is building up to the heart of the passage. Which is the substitutionary atonement. That's just a fancy word for the death of Christ. He he died for our sins. He took our rightful place. The wrath of God was placed on him. He died for us. And he was esteemed as stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. As to say that he was esteemed as brought low or humiliated, severely scored, struck down. He was completely, utterly taken down stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. And the Jews in their unbelief actually thought that God struck Christ down for his message. They believed that. They were even found deriding him in Matthew 27, right? Saying, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Mocking him. Let's see, let's see if God does something. Let's see if God takes him down, comes to his rescue. If he's really God's. They fail to realize that God didn't strike them down for his message, but to fulfill his message. To fulfill his message. This brings us to our fifth verse here. Looking at verse 5, we're moving into the crucifixion. This is the climax of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our Now, I don't want to get too far off track, but I do want you to turn back with me to Psalm 22. I'm going to go to Psalm chapter 22. And the reason I want to examine this, just read through it briefly, is because it ties in so much with Isaiah 53. We're going to be looking at the 7th to the 18th verse. reads all who see me mock me they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him yet you are he who took me from the womb you made me trust you at my mother's breasts on you was i cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my god be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint and my heart is melted like wax within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced My hands and feet, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is a vivid picture of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as mirrored in Matthew chapter 27. We see that the Lord's hands are pierced. His feet are pierced, even his side is pierced. Five holes in the Savior's body. Between this and the brutal flogging and which made him unrecognizable as a man, it's no wonder that the psalm says his heart melted like wax. And we know this to be true because even Pilate was surprised at how quick the Lord had died. I mean, just imagine that. The severe scourging. We know that he went through horrendous scourging. I don't know how many of you have watched The Passion of the Christ... But I've heard people say that that doesn't even give a real depiction of what Christ actually went through. He was beaten horribly. Horribly. He was in physical and mental anguish. And then he's on the cross having a hard time breathing, pierced. And his heart, it says, melts like wax. And for what? What did he do it all for? He says he did it for our transgressions. What does it mean to transgress? It simply means to infringe upon something or go beyond the bounds of something. In this case, it's God's moral law. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a universal truth. Everyone is a sinner. And notice it says that he was also crushed. But at, at what moment was he Crushed? Nowhere in the New Testament do we see that Jesus was laid down and a board put over him and people are jumping on it or that he was physically crushed in any way. This is not a physical crushing. He was physically pierced, but no, he was not physically crushed. Because the scripture says, right, that no bone in his body was broken. But remembering what Psalm 22.1 says, we didn't read that, but it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. This is what Jesus says while he's on the cross. Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the moment that Jesus was crushed. The moment that God the Father had to look away from God the Son, the only moment, the only time in eternity past or future. And this is what Jesus was truly dreading in Luke. 22, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying for the cup to pass him, I've heard some people say, "Well, he was he was afraid of death. He was afraid to die." I I don't don't think so. I don't think he was afraid to die. I mean, don't get me wrong, crucifixion that that's a horrible way to die. But even the thieves on the cross next to Jesus are they're not in complete agony. They're able to deride him. They're able to mock him. I, I don't think that it was the crucifixion necessarily. He was afraid of not even the scourging. But the but the moment that the full weight of sin and the whole wrath of God would be poured upon him, he would have to absorb all of it. And on top of that, he would have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says that because that's exactly what he's experiencing at that moment. And we see him in the garden praying to the point of sweating great drops of blood that that that's fervent prayer. The Bible says he was in agony and the sweating of blood shows the unfathomable intensity of that agony. In the medical field, the sweating of blood is called hematohydrosis. And it's an extremely rare thing that can happen under times of horrendous bodily distress. There's been some debate as to whether or not this is what Jesus was really experiencing. Either way, the picture's clear. He was in extreme agony and he did pray fervently, but his portion was on the cross. And while on the cross, during this time, the Bible records a great darkness over the entire land, a darkness that can undoubtedly be felt, even to the soul. Some secular writers have even gone as far as to say it was some type of supernatural darkness that couldn't really be explained. Some people try to say, well, it was an eclipse. No one knows. It was the darkest hour of Jesus' life, though. He was crushed. And it pleased the Father to do it, the Scripture says. Just think of that for a minute. It pleased the Father to crush Christ for you. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him. The full wrath of God was poured out on Him. And it is because of this truth that peace was brought to us who believe. Now, if we forget the reason that he came into the world was to die, we miss the whole big picture, just like his disciples did, right? What about Peter? When Peter hears that the Lord has to go and suffer. He's going to have to die. He takes him aside and rebukes him and says, no, Lord, it can't be so. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. Looking back to Isaiah 9-6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's a wonderful Christmas verse. We all know it. And it is talking about his birth, but he becomes the Prince of Peace in his death. And this is what Peter failed to realize that he would become the Prince of Peace by his death. Just as Isaiah 53 said, it was the chastisement that brought us peace. The word peace is used approximately 430 times in the Bible, and most of the time it refers to peace in a more general sense. But the peace referred to in both these passages is not some common or general peace, but a shalom peace. To be most specific, it refers to being at peace with God through Christ, to have a complete, lasting, enduring, true, authentic, real peace. I think it's amazing how peace is interwoven all throughout Scripture and that Jesus is at the very head of it all. Peace is centered on Christ. Jesus is the Prince of Peace that would take upon himself the chastisement that brought us peace. And from this would come forth the gospel of peace, as Ephesians 6.15 calls it. It's a wonderful thing that Jesus Christ died for us. Colossians 1.20 says that it was by the blood of the cross that Jesus made peace. By the blood of his cross, that's how peace came. But a question may arise then, what does this mean to me? Is this all to be merited? Merited? Do I got to be a good person to enjoy this? is this only go out to those who are seemingly good? If that were so, Isaiah would be at odds with himself. Because in uh, the sixth verse, he says, we like sheep have all gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And then again in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, all have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Think of that for a minute. Every righteous deed is like a filthy garment. Now, this is in reference to righteous deeds outside of Christ. But the point is here that no one's good. No one's good. Paul says in Romans three ten through twelve, while well, quoting the psalmist, "None is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one." There is not one person here today, nor has there ever been a mortal man to have ever existed, who is able to merit God's salvation, blessing or favor in any way. Again, the scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Isaiah says we're like sheep. I think it's funny. Sheep are are stupid generally and prone to wander. This is an image that is meant to keep us humble and remind us of who we really are as people. We're vulnerable. We're weak. We're wretched. We're helpless. We're in dire need of a shepherd all of our days. Finally, Isaiah says... That the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's that? Who's the all? Is it everybody? Everybody who will believe. To everyone who would believe, your iniquity is placed on Christ. And his righteousness is placed on you. The question is then, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe this message? And I know many here do, and for us who do, it's a wonderful reminder, beautiful reminder of the marvelous work that God has done through Christ Jesus on our behalf. And I think we need to remember that. This is why we have peace this time of year, because of the finished work of the cross, because of the Prince of Peace who took on the chastisement that brought us peace and gave us the gospel of peace. But I would be foolish to assume that everyone in this room believes this. And if you don't, you have no real cause for peace this Christmas season. Or at all for that matter. And once the season is over, as Brother Brian said, and the hype of materialism is gone, you'll be left empty without any peace. You certainly won't have a peace that outlasts the Christmas season. But the gospel is simple, right? God sent his son to the earth. Jesus is very God and very man. He lived a perfect, sinless life, was betrayed, went to the cross, was crucified. He died, was buried, and rose on the third day. And the gospel message is if you believe this and turn from your sin, you will, you will be saved. But there's only one way, one way. Acts 4.12 says, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The reformers would put it like this. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Where is your hope today? Because if your hope is in yourself or in your own righteousness, you remain under the wrath of God. All these things we read was upon Jesus will be upon you, but more. If you are not in Christ, so I would beg you for those of you here who could say in your heart, I don't know Christ. I don't have a relationship with Christ. I've never known him. I would beg you to believe this gospel. And Isaiah 53, although it's a beautiful picture, is only the starting point. It's only the beginning. There's so much more to know. But it is a simple message. Believe, repent, and you will be saved been thinking about John 6, when the people would come and ask, what is it to do the works of God? What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? Jesus says, believe in him whom he sent. This is to do the work of God. Believe and you will be saved. Let us pray. Father, we do pray for souls. Not just here in this room, of course here in this room, but not just here, but all over, all over the world as we think about Christ this Christmas season and those who are totally void of peace, they have no cause of peace. Some of them don't even know it, God, but would you quicken their hearts? Would you quicken the hearts of anyone in this room who maybe doesn't truly believe or know you that they might be serious about you? Or quicken the hearts of those in the world, Lord, all abroad who don't know you, to draw them in by your grace, your love, your mercy. Lord, we pray for souls. We pray that in this seemingly wicked, wretched generation, that there would be a light that would dawn, that we might just see some form of awakening. That people would be saved, affected towards you. God, move your sovereign hand, we pray. Save to the uttermost, Father. And we pray for peace. We pray that we who do believe would be reminded that we don't have to be in fear. And that we don't have to lose lose peace when the Christmas season is over. But we have a lasting, enduring, eternal peace in Christ through you, Father. Your gift you've given to us. And finally, Lord, I pray that we would have a Christ-centered Christmas that we wouldn't be a, a materialistic people, a people so wooed by the, the things put before us, but we would be steadfast and immovable, abounding in every good work according to your word. Be with us this Christmas season. Strengthen our hearts. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray.